and gentlemen. Uh, can I please have your attention? Daniel Jigger! Dear listeners, this is Jonah Gober, host of the Remnant Podcast, brought to you by The Dispatch and Dispatch Media. Uh, before we get going, I just want to talk to you really quick about our first big uh, conference that we're going to be having. It's called the What's Next um, event, and you can go and learn more about it at whatsnextevent.com. It's going to be on November 9 and 10. Uh, tickets are a hundred bucks. I know that's a little pricey, but, um, it also includes a complimentary subscription to the dispatch. And if you think that this is just a clever way to get you to subscribe to the dispatch, it's not, or I should say, it's not just that, <laughs> um, because it's actually going to be, um, a really great conference and it's, it's shaping up. We have already locked in, uh, Congresswoman Liz Cheney, uh, Ben Sass, Tim Scott, more panels and interviews are coming. I'm putting together one on the importance of institutions. Some of you can probably guess uh, who's going to be on that and also on the future of conservatism. Uh, other panels include election 2020, what just happens and what it means for 2021, uh, a 2021 agenda, Congress under Trump or Biden administration, uh, the future of the right, uh, one on the state of the world, and another one on economy and COVID-19. Uh, we'll flesh out some of these things in the days and weeks to come, but it's going to be I'm a big deal, and we're going to get um, a lot of newsmakers and, as as really annoying people might say, thinkfluencers uh, to participate. So if you can sign up, that would be wonderful. If you want to sign up your friends or your institutions, that would be wonderful too. So enough about all that. Uh, today's episode, we have uh, one of my favorite people, uh, Kristen Soltis Anderson. She is a longtime, particularly oddly, given how young she is, a uh, longtime pollster who uh, has worked in Republican politics and in sort of uh, nonpartisan consumer research kind of politics and public polling for a while now. She's the co-founder of Echelon Insights. Um, she just put out this big new report for the Walton Family Foundation on uh, young peoples and their attitudes, which we're going to talk about a little bit. And she's also the owner, I should say, the companion of Wally, one of the sweetest golden retrievers in Christendom. Um, and you'll learn later that Christendom means something here because uh, he wasn't born in Christendom. So uh, today's episode is sponsored by our friends at Donors Trust and ZipRecruiter. More about them in a little bit. So let's just get started with uh, Kristen Soltis Anderson. Kristen, welcome back to The Remnant. Great to have you. Thank you for having me. Um, so we are recording this very early on, uh, I think it's Tuesday morning. Um, but what, what do we have like two weeks left before? Yeah, very close. I actually got it wrong on a call the other day. I was like, Hey, you know, next week is the election and <laughs> that may have been wishful thinking, <laughs> but yeah, we're two weeks out. Um, although this has been a peeve of mine and only recently are people starting to be careful about saying this. It's not two weeks until election day. It's two weeks until the nominal ending of voting, right? Because election day has essentially started. We have what, like 30 million votes in. Um, yes. In you've, the had both, you've had mail-in voting happening for quite some time in many states, and you've had early voting in person now begin in a lot of places. So I believe yesterday was the first day of in-person early voting in Florida, and they 
shattered previous records. Uh, there are tons and tons and tons of ballots that will be cast, cast well ahead of what we think of as election day. The other thing to remember is that it's going to be prolonged on the back end as a result, or it, it might be prolonged on the back end right. as a result. If the election is even remotely close, there are going to be millions of ballots that they don't even start counting until November 3rd, which seems wild to me, but that's the way some states do it. So, so, um, since we've never, I mean, I know there's been early voting before and yada, yada, but never on this scale, right? I mean, this is, this is just different. How, how, how should we think about polling when something like, you know, what, a, a, a fifth, a quarter of the votes are going to be in certainly before election day? Um, you know, does it, does it not matter in terms of what public opinion means because it's going to be reflected in all of that? I mean, just. How do you think about it? I, I think it would be a bigger deal if there, if if two things were in play. One, if turnout was expected to be overall low, if the the vote method and timing was changing, but the turnout was was staying was going to be low, that would be hard. But in this case, the fact that turnout is going to be so high, I frankly think helps pollsters out. Typically, it's harder to poll in a race that's going to have low turnout because you've got to do the hard job of figuring out. Who are the two out of 10 voters who are going to participate in that weird off-year primary runoff? Um, but in an election like this, when people are going to crawl across broken glass to get to the polls, if you call someone and they're a registered voter, the odds that they're going to be participating are extraordinarily high. So it sort of helps us get our likely voter screen right when there's less room for error, when every voter is pretty likely this time around. The one area where there's a little bit of challenge is sometimes pollsters will, you know, when they're doing their weighting and adjustments for likely voters, they'll ask someone, did you vote already? And if you voted already, you know, that you really count as a likely voter, you're at 100% in that model. And we know that Democrats in particular are more likely to vote by mail and vote very early this time, which could lead to if pollsters aren't aren't handling it right, I suppose could lead to a democratic skew in their results a little bit. If if it's just that they're counting as 100% banked all of these democratic votes and they're counting as 80 to 90% going to be cast all of these Republican votes. Um, but but I think ultimately that's not a huge concern. For me, the bigger concern is what votes on the back end don't get counted. Um, pollsters are calling people saying, who are you voting for? And they say Joe Biden or Donald Trump. But the pollster has no way of knowing that that ballot they've mailed in did not come in the proper privacy envelope. And so it's going to get thrown out. And if that happens in large numbers, that's much harder to account for. Um, it, I guess it I mean, it, it's kind of an obvious point once you think about it. But I guess I mean, if everybody voted if you just knew that everybody was going to vote because they're required to, or they're compelled to, or someone used blood magic or whatever, it would make your poll, it make the job of pollsters a lot easier. Right. I mean, because you, first of all, you wouldn't have to take anybody's word for anything. Um, I mean, I'm just mean in the abstract, it hadn't really occurred to me that the more people who vote, the easier it is for you to figure out your weird diodes and framfras and kinestrays to get <laughs> get the right sample but that makes a lot of sense when you think about it um um so all right let's 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 run through partly because it's in my head um um because i just wrote in my la times column touching on this stuff um 
Where do you come down? I think we've talked about this before, but where do you come down on the shy Trump voter rigmarole? I come down on the position that it was not a significant factor in 2016, that in 2016, the things that were wrong with the polls were not counting enough voters who didn't have a college education, and in some of those swing states, not doing enough polling late enough in the race to catch late movement. And so the undecided factor was a big deal. People breaking, you know, Hillary Clinton still believes that the Comey letter was a huge reason why she lost. I'm, I'm skeptical of, of her reasoning there. But nonetheless, there were some folks changing their minds up to the last minute. I don't think there are as many people this time around changing their minds up to the last minute. But I am open to the possibility that there could be shy Trump voters. Now, there are a couple different ways this theory is proposed, the most preposterous of which is the theory that Trump voters en masse are picking up the phone when an unknown number calls. They are talking to that unknown number and they are answering basically honestly on everything except to say they're voting for Biden or they're voting for Jorgensen or what have you. And then they're hanging up the phone and they're getting a big chuckle about it. Um, I am sure that at the margins, there are a handful of people who do that. I had a college professor once tell me that whenever he took a survey, he would respond as if he was an elderly Latina woman because he knew that would <laughs> upweight his results in the survey. So I'm, I'm not uh, I, I'm not so naive as to think no one is lying when they talk to pollsters. Um, if I do a survey and I ask, you know, do you have a favorable or unfavorable view of, of adorable puppies? Four percent of people in that poll are going to be trolling me and saying, "No, I hate adorable puppies." Right. So this is just part of how it works. But is it completely throwing off the results when you have a race where Biden is up by ten nationally? People trolling the pollsters is not accounting for that margin. Right. Now the other theory, there are two other theories of the shy Trump voter. One is that they are talking to pollsters, and and maybe it's not that they want to lie. But they are they are just saying they're unsure and they're uncomfortable saying who they're voting for, even though they really are voting for Trump. And in 2016, I actually heard there was some evidence for this from Tony Fabrizio, who was the Trump campaign's pollster. It wasn't so much that people were lying and not saying they were voting for Trump. They would answer that they agreed with Trump on a whole host of issues. They wanted wrecking ball style change. They wanted to build the wall. But they they didn't yet know they were Trump voters. They'd say, well, I'm still undecided on who I'm voting for. In the end, those folks were going to break for Trump. What worries me this time is because people dislike pollsters so much more than they did four years ago, is not that Trump voters are picking up the phone and making stuff up for 20 minutes of time, but rather that they're just not picking up the phone at all. And the good news there is that many polls are calling respondents off of lists of known voters. Many people know this, but if you are a registered voter, that fact is public record. And that fact is available to pollsters who go and pull those lists of everybody who's registered to vote in state X, Y, or Z and use that as the basis for building their sample, which means I know who picks up the phone and who doesn't. I know that if I've called 10 voters and I called five Republicans and five Democrats and all five Democrats took the poll and only two of the Republicans took the poll, I know that I might have a problem and I can adjust for it. And yet everyone I've talked to who's doing these polls in key swing states via phone off of these lists is not really reporting that they're having Republicans systematically hanging up or not picking up in greater numbers than Democrats. So I'm really skeptical of the shy Trump effect this time around, though I acknowledge that there are three different ways it could play out. And each of those could 
could be in play. Um, but certain, I don't think it's nearly enough to account for 10% of, you know, a lead in a race. Yeah. So it's funny because you didn't mention the thing I see the most on Twitter um, as a sort of, aha, this is proof they're out there, is this argument that, and they now ask it in polls a lot, is like, they ask people, who do you think your neighbors are going to vote for? And it seems to me, I mean, I heard the 538 guys talking about this a while back. It seems to me that's a that's a pretty unrigorous question to begin with because people are less expert on what their neighbors are going to vote for. And then, so this is what I wrote about my LA Times column. Um, um, the Fox poll that just had this thing that said that you know, by 11 point margin, more people think they're they're people in their community are going to vote for Trump than they're going to vote for for Biden. The people who are by far three times more likely to say that than than other people is are very liberal voters. Yeah. And it seems to me that this is a part and parcel of a larger general freak out among liberals that they think that 2016 is going to replay and they're just all jangly and weird. Uh, it's sort of on a like three day coke bender, paranoid kind of thing, and don't want anyone to jinx it. And they get really angry about stuff. And when you say that Biden's ahead, they get really tense about it. And so when you ask them, who do you think people are going to vote for? They they vent with that. I just think it's ironic that the people who are citing this number are actually citing the same phenomenon that is driving these people to polls in massive numbers because they're voting on their fear. Yeah, this is we found this in in Echelon's last uh, monthly poll where we asked people, who are you voting for? And then we said, who do you think will win the election? And we actually found that uh, the vast majority of Trump voters believed that Donald Trump would win. Now, this was before he had COVID and the debate. So it's a little bit of a dated number at this point. We'll have a fresh number next week. But uh, it was Trump voters really believe Trump's going to win. He's going to shock the world. He's going to do it again. But the, the liberals in the poll and the, the Democrats believed they actually slightly more likely believed that Joe Biden would win versus Trump. But the percentage who said they were undecided or unsure, rather, was huge. So there is this clear like Trump voters think my guy is going to shock the world again. He's going to do it again. I bet you these pollsters are wrong. And that's just what they think. But even progressives, they, they, they still have enough of that memory of last time. And I, I did a very brief Twitter thread about this where I said, you know, in 2016, I tried to fight really hard against emotion infiltrating my analysis. This idea that the polls did not show Hillary Clinton up by so much. She was up by four or five points, you know, closed a little bit in the final days nationally. In key swing states, there were many instances where she wasn't you know, she was up by sizable margins. But I think in my mind, I was so convinced that there's just no way Donald Trump could win that it would it would weigh on me as I was thinking about the, the actual probabilities of Hillary Clinton winning. So this time around, emotion is infiltrating people's analysis the other direction. The data this time are much clearer. There are fewer undecideds. Biden's lead is more stable. It's wider. Um, and people know who Donald Trump is and he's not running against Hillary Clinton. So there are, those are five very, very big things that are different than last time. And yet now emotion infiltrates analysis and I think causes people to hedge a lot more. 
when the data does not suggest that at least if the election were held today, and as you mentioned, the election is being held today, you would not need to hedge as much. So I am not jetting off to Vegas to put money down on this election because it's 2020 and it's a weird year. And that's a totally non-scientific thing to say, but it's, it's, <laughs> it is weighing on my analysis. Um, but I, I do wonder to what extent folks have almost overcorrected in the way they're thinking about this data. Because bear in mind, margin of error runs both ways. I ran into this, um, the, the Fox poll came out a couple weeks ago, and it showed Trump at 41% nationwide with Latino voters which would be a lot better than he did in 2016. That's almost like George W. Bush re-election numbers mm-hmm. with Hispanic voters. This would be really good for any Republican. And I, I mentioned the number on air because I thought it was interesting. And I had a lot of folks saying, well, you know, but the margin of error on that subsample is so large, it could be as low as, you know, 20 some percent. Completely true. But margin of error does work both ways. Right. It could be as high as 50 I don't think that Donald Trump is at 50% with Hispanic voters. But if you're going to start relying on margin of error as your like, crutch for explaining why a number is actually more like what you think it is, you have to take into consideration that the number could be bigger. We could be looking at a Biden blowout that is unprecedented. Um, that is a scenario that's on the table that I think people do not talk about as much because they're so focused on, well, what if it's 2016 again? Yeah, I mean, the the last time I heard the, I mean, I, I, one of the reasons I listen to the five thirty eight guys is I think they're pretty honest brokers, but also that since they lean left, they're good for checking my biases about some things. And um, but they were making the case a while back that, and I think Dylan Byler was making this case recently as well that as a matter of probability, the odds of a total biden sort of reagan 84 run the table i mean maybe not 49 states but you know like a major run the table uh result are about as likely as trump very narrowly picking the lock lock on the electoral college again and you know but it's like you know john pedoritz as i was driving in here you know he texted me about how people are freaking out that biden's in a new poll down to nine point lead and they're losing their minds in panic about it. You know, I mean, there is this weird way about how people don't want to just look. I mean, I understand it for the pro-Trump people because they think history's on their side. And, you know, since especially since they touch the orb, of course, things are going to go their way. But on the the Democratic side, there is this. I mean, it's it's infiltrating a lot of punditry. You know, for example, one of the example, examples I used is when the New York Post story came out about Hunter Biden's stuff, and, you know, I, I don't think the Post should have run it as uncritically as they did, and they should have done more reporting, and blah, 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 blah. But whatever your opinion about the thing is, the response from a lot of sort of blue chart, blue checkmark liberal types was pure outrage if you called attention to it, even to criticize it. I mean, they they piled on Maggie Haberman about it. Or a better example would be... um. Biden's the first presidential debate. Biden did very well in the first presidential debate. I think by all estimates, he beat Trump, or at least Trump lost resoundedly. And the immediate response from all of official Democrat world and, and, and liberal Twitter world and liberal journalist world was, we must never have another one of these things. Well, I mean, like, wait a second, your guy just cleaned some of the other guy's clock, but you're so afraid of things going wonky that 
your response to this is let's not do that again rather than wahoo we got two more opportunities to do this again it's a very weird sort of don't jinx it kind of mood that's just saturating so much of the anti-trump i would say the anti-trump left crowd i'm i'm dead inside so i don't have these reactions one way or the other um all right so very quickly because i want to talk about this big new report thing that you've done um but first uh, just very quickly how do you feel about because we talked about this before a long time ago how do you feel about the state polling this time um where do you think michigan really is where do you think do you really do you really think that texas could conceivably flip for for biden i think the state polling this time is better than last time for two reasons one is to the extent that pollsters were not waiting for education last time around they were counting too many college educated voters Pollsters have addressed that this time around, by and large. And the second thing is there's just more polling in the states. I think last time around, part of what the problem was, was you had this drought of state-based polling and everybody sort of got the memo, ah, yes, we elect presidents on a state-by-state basis. Wild. <laughs> uh, and have, have begun uh, doing more polling there. So the, and frankly, the entrance of more players in that space is a good thing, not just if a single pollster is doing polling more frequently, that's also good, but more people playing in that space means you've got more people with different assumptions, different methods, different voodoo magic that are all trying different things and seeing what sticks. And if all of their polls are pointing in the same direction, you can feel a little more confident. Um, it makes me feel better from time to time when there is an outlier in the mix, because then you know people are not hurting. They're not, you know, right. sitting on unusual poll results because they don't want to be wrong. Um, we've had enough polls come out from places like Quinnipiac and Monmouth and what have you in the last couple of weeks that have been a little odd. And people have noted that and I, those that frankly gives me comfort to know that those numbers are out there. Um, will Texas turn blue is an interesting question because it's one of those where it's like been Lucy holding the football for Democrats for so long. This is the year it's going to turn blue. Oh, it's going to be Wendy Davis. That's what's going to turn Texas blue. <laughs> That's not what's going to turn Texas blue. Yeah. Um, Beto O'Rourke, he's what's going to turn Texas blue. No, he's not what's going to turn Texas blue. Um, and yet, just because you've been burned and burned and burned before, it does not mean Texas will burn Democrats this time around. Um, you know, you have, because that was kind of how Pennsylvania was for Republicans. I remember in 2012, um, ha- being kind of spun by some folks in Romneyland that, hey, Pennsylvania's on the table. You know, mm-hmm. uh, he just had a rally in Bucks County and it was rainy and freezing and thousands of people were lined up outside. I remember and that. then it didn't work. And that, but, and, and the fact that that was a whiff was in part why in 2016, when they were like, you should see the crowds at these Trump rallies, Pennsylvania, it's in play. I was like, I don't know, guys. I heard the same thing from the Romney folks. I'm going to stick to looking at the polls. And it wound up that was the time it worked. So there's a first time for everything is, is what I'd say. I'm skeptical that Texas will turn blue, but it's 2020. As you mentioned, they touched the orb. If it was going to yeah. happen, <laughs> this is the time. Well, I mean, I, my only, the thing I've been thinking about it is if, if, if you assume, like I'm not saying you are, but if you assume that Biden is going to win, as a conservative, I'm trying to figure out like what is best for the country, for conservatism going forward. And it occurs to me that if, in a weird way, if Biden wins Texas, you know, and hopefully Republicans hold on to the Senate or whatever, you know, it's a different argument. It makes it harder for Biden to claim he has some sort of huge mandate because no one thinks that Texas voted for Biden, 
right? I mean, the, 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 if, if, if Texas flipped, it's because a significant number of people voted against Trump, right? And, um, and I think that that's the thing that people don't factor into so much of this stuff is, I mean, the, the, the last three presidents we've had, their, their first and foremost mandate was to be not the person either they were running against or not the person they were replacing. You know, Barack Obama was supposed to be not George Bush. Donald Trump was not Hillary Clinton. That was his primary mandate. You know, he does not win if it wasn't, if not for the anti-Hillary vote. And so in a sense, I guess I'm talking myself out of this because they all ignore that and then they, they overreach and I could see Biden taking the mandate and trying to run with it and making life difficult for himself and everybody else. Well, um, I, I think, you know, I think this question of having a mandate and what policies do you advance? I mean, think about George W. Bush in, in 2004. He wins and he says, hey, I've got a mandate. And he decides to pursue Social Security reform. Yeah, which is and great. it doesn't go well. And it was, you know, did he run his campaign in, 20, in 2004 on I vote for me and I'm going to reform Social Security? That's not my recollection of that race. Yeah. Um, similar, but on the flip side, you know, you Yes, Donald Trump won in large part because he wasn't Hillary Clinton, but he was also pretty clear about what he wanted to do. I'm going to renegotiate trade deals. I'm going to make create jobs by cutting taxes and we're going to make things great for corporations. I'm going to build the wall. I mean, he, he had a couple things where love him or hate him, you knew what you were getting into when you were voting for him, at least in terms of those policies. And I do think it's going to be interesting for Biden to govern even if he gets a huge landslide win, because name for me quickly what the three things are that a Joe Biden administration wants to do in the first hundred days. I know they want to roll back all of the things on pen and phone that they can from the Trump administration, but he keeps calling these lids and, and you know, we're not going to hear from him until Thursday. I think they called the lid this morning and said, nope, Biden's going to be hiding in the bunker for the next few days. Yeah. I get the risk of her strategy. As you mentioned, you know, they don't want to jinx anything. Don't uh, the Napoleon line, you know, don't don't stop your uh, opponent when he's making an error. Uh, tr that seems to be every day for Trump. But if Biden has not run on anything beyond sort of platitudes and I'm not Donald Trump, um, that might make it harder for him to govern because both the centrists and the progressives in his party are going to think that the mandate that he has is about them. Yeah. yeah. And that will make governing hard. So you left out one of the other things that that uh, Donald Trump vowed to do when he was, uh, it was his promises, which was to hire the best people. And some people could argue that he did, and some people could argue that he didn't. But one thing I can tell you is that if you use ZipRecruiter, you will. It's election time. And whether you've already voted or you still need to vote, it's our country's chance to boost the best candidate for president, vice president, and hundreds of members of Congress. That's a lot of jobs to fill, especially after months of watching debates and researching their experience. What if you had to do all of that work every time you needed to hire for your business? Thankfully, there's ZipRecruiter. ZipRecruiter does the work for you. And right now, you can try it for free at ZipRecruiter.com slash dingo. First, when you post a job on ZipRecruiter, it gets sent out over to 100 different job sites with just one click. Then ZipRecruiter's powerful matching technology finds people with the right skills and experience for your job and actively invites them to apply. So you get qualified candidates 
fast. It's no wonder four out of five employers who post on ZipRecruiter get a quality candidate within the first day. Right now, you can try ZipRecruiter for free at ZipRecruiter.com slash Dingo. That's ZipRecruiter.com slash D-I-N-G-O. You may be stressed out about the election, but you won't be stressed out about hiring when you try ZipRecruiter for free at ZipRecruiter.com slash Dingo. ZipRecruiter, the smartest way to hire. Okay, so um, uh, the original, when obviously the doors of the remnant are always open to you, but uh, what put you in mind when we were talking last week or two weeks ago about coming back on is you have this big new report that you seem very excited about. And, and when people are excited about stuff that they do, and I'm excited about the people who, who, who do it, I um, say, oh, let's have you on and talk about it. So what was this big report? What did you find? What is the secret to life? So for a long time, as you know, and as listeners to The Remnant know, I've been very interested in the question of young voters and where is the millennial generation taking our country. And in the face of a pandemic, that is, you know, overwhelmingly having, while it's having massive health consequences for older Americans, it's having huge sort of economic and life milestone consequences for young Americans. They're, you know, they're either not able to have the college experience they were expecting. Um, they're, it's hard to get a job out there if you're just entering the job market. You know, things are tough out there for young voters. Um, and so I had been talking with the folks at the Walton Family Foundation for a while about wanting to study young voters at a very broad level, do you think that your future is bright or what do you think stands in your way? What do you think uh, is possible for you? And what do you think is preventing what you want to happen in your life from happening? Um, because they have a focus on issues like education and the environment that tend to be really important uh, for younger voters. So we we dug in and you know, if you look at most polls, when you ask people, do you think the next generation will be better off or worse off? Most people say they think the next generation is gonna be worse off. They assume that you know, the, the best days are probably behind us that, you know, whether it's technology is going to make our life worse because we're all going to be addicted to social media and you're going to have cancel culture and, and everything and the policies that are in place and oh they're going to have to deal with the debt and entitlements. And there's, oh, gosh, everything's going to be terrible. And when you actually ask young people what they think, they take a very different view. Um, in our survey, we found 81 percent of young Americans, so those sort of aged 18, or actually our survey went all the way down to 13 years old, 13 to about 39, 81% say they believe if they work hard in life, they can succeed. Seven in 10 say they believe they can move up the economic ladder if they work hard. Two thirds say that they think they can achieve the American dream. Um, these are all numbers that I think were much higher than anyone would have expected if you're the type who really thinks the next generation is worse off. And frankly, if you listen to a lot of the most prominent sort of young activists who say, who like talk about this in terms of generational warfare and look, the boomer, look at what the boomers are leaving us. I feel like most young people actually, given our research, have a, a much more optimistic view of how things are going. Um, and so how does that break down? I mean, I, I, how does it break down sort of on a partisan basis to the extent you can say, is it are, are right of center types more optimistic than left of center types or, or forget partisan or whichever way you want to do it? Uh, uh, are more religious people more enthusiastic? I mean, what can we what, what do we know about where the pessimism and the or the optimism 
aligns other than just by age group. Sure. So in a different study I did for Young America's Foundation over the summer, we looked at this in terms of of party and ideology. um, And we found that for the most part, it was young progressive women were the least optimistic, that they were the ones that were the most sort of frustrated with America, et cetera, but that there was optimism pretty widespread everywhere else besides young progressive women. Um, In this survey, we weren't looking at it so much through a political lens as we were through demographic lens. But what I was most, I think, excited about is on that question of, can you achieve the American dream? The results were nearly identical by race, Um, whether you were white, Asian American, Latino, Black. It it was not as though um, this was something that only the white respondents felt was within their reach. And in fact, one of the other questions we asked was, do you think you'll be better or worse off than your parents were? And only 42% of young white respondents said they thought they'd be better off than their parents. Most of them said they thought they would be about the same as their parents. Um, But for young Black, Latino, and Asian American uh, adults, they said that they, I mean, I think it was close to six in 10, said they think they'll be better off than their parents were. Now, some of that may be that their parents are not starting off in as good a position because we've made a ton of progress on things like racial equality, et cetera, even in just my lifetime, to say nothing of the lifetime that their parents lived. But um, I just think it's interesting that there's both this acknowledgement of progress in our survey and a sense of optimism, as well as, you know, it is not as though everything was sunshine and roses. We found, you know, six in 10 young Black Americans think that racial inequality is going to be a big barrier to them achieving opportunity, that, you know, huge numbers said the cost of college education, not being able to get health care, that were big, big, big problems standing in their way. Um, they think the environment is getting worse. Uh, that's That came across pretty clearly in our research. So it's not as though they think everything is wonderful on the horizon. They think there are big challenges they've got to overcome. They're just pretty confident in themselves that they'll be able to overcome it. Yeah. And, and the good news is they're wrong about the environment. So, you know, one day when they grow up, they'll learn that. Um, <laughs> uh, but uh, so how does that compare to like previous? I mean, I agree with you. It's counterintuitive given where the conventional wisdom is about how dyspeptic and grumpy young people tend to be um, uh, perceived as, I should say. Um, how does that compare to previous generations, though? I mean, is 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 this still lower, but more optimistic than we thought? Or is it about par for the course for people of that, this age bracket at this point in their lives? So this was a, a, a prominent conservative columnist who I will, I'll protect his identity. You know, I was, I was discussing this with him and he, he sort of noted, look, on the one hand, you can read it as glass half full. Oh, look, you know, almost half of young people think they're going to be better off than their parents. But what, gosh, I feel like when I was growing up, that was just the expectation and you would have seen much higher numbers. So unfortunately, I don't have specific trend line data on these questions going back over past generations to know, yeah. you know, is this type of optimism better or worse? What I do know is that when you look at polls that survey across generations and you ask, do you think the next generation will be better or worse off? Consistently, it's old people who think the young people are screwed and it's the young people who actually say we're going to be fine. Yeah. Um, and part of that, we, we did a, in addition to the survey, we did a qualitative exercise. We did interviews with over a hundred uh, young people asking them like three days worth of questions. It was, it was pretty intense. And then one of the questions we asked was how do, would you, if you had to define your generation in a word, what would it be? 
And I know the caricature of millennials is that we're all supposed to be these like fragile snowflakes, or maybe that's the caricature of Gen Z. Um, But most of the responses from millennials were things like, I think we're pretty resilient. We're pretty adaptable Um, that we've, we've gone through now two economic crises or, you know, collapses. We've gone through a global pandemic. We've gone, you know, we first came of age during two wars, um, you know, school shootings, you name it, we've been through it. And yet we think we're going to be fine. Um, We're pretty pragmatic. We're entrepreneurial. We'll come up with a new way to overcome whatever the world is throwing at us. So that was pretty interesting and, and seems to track with a lot of the data I see around millennials and their politics being a little more sort of centrist and pragmatic. Um, like we're just going to put our heads down and, and power through this. The Gen Zers, on the other hand, are m- less likely to say, oh, we're going to adapt. We'll come up with a creative solution. We'll be fine. They're more likely to say we're going to raise our voices and bring about change. But the reason why they think the future is bright is not because they think they're inheriting a great world, but rather because they think they're going to be vocal and aggressive about bringing about change that will create the world that they want for themselves. Um, And so you do see that, I think, in the difference between how Gen Z and millennials communicate politically, that while millennials are more likely to have this more Obama-ish, you know, let's all hold hands, hope and change and find a solution together, um, that Gen Z is more likely to say, let's go, you know, let's go shake some things up. Let's go march in the streets. Let's go start a movement. Um, it's just, it's a bit of a, a difference in their overall approach to how they want to bring about change. All right. So this, this I, mean, I mean, as you know, I'm, I'm somewhat skeptical of, of sort of generational stereotyping. I mean, I understand that there are, there are themes to generations that are analytically useful and relevant and accurate and all that. I uh, granted, um, and I won't go through my spiel about how the greatest generation really wasn't uniformly great, but, um, it, it, so like when you say that, like, so one of the things when, when I'd asked that question about, um, what were levels of optimism for young people at this equivalent age and previous generations, um, I remember when I when I first came to Washington, I worked for this guy Ben Wattenberg, and we did a lot of survey research stuff. And I remember, you know, looking up, um, you know, the youth vote in 1972 basically split evenly between McGovern and Nixon, and this shocked everybody um, because the popular face of the youth vote was damn hippies. I mean, I'll just to cut to the chase. Yeah. And, um, uh, and these throughout the, one of the points that Ben always used to make is that throughout the Vietnam war, the single age cohort that was pro most pro military were 18 to 24 year olds or 18 to 21 or something like that. And so when you say that Gen Z, um, are much more vocal about stirring things up and, and all of these kinds of things, is that, truly a across the board characteristic of the generation or is it just the 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 part of the generation that we see and that we hear from is actually like that you understand what i'm saying i think it's more broad-based because this is i mean the the folks we were studying were not the folks who are you know tiktok stars these were you know average average young people who this is how that's this is their conception of themselves. And I think you also see it. I mean, think about the difference between 
what the college Republicans were like during the Bush administration versus like what turning point is like today. Think about it in in those terms, you know, that instead of the like, let's do a voter registration drive while we're wearing our bow ties, no offense to the college Republicans. I love them. (laughs) But, you know, I'm thinking about it when I, from when I was in college, very different than the like, let's own the libs with some sick memes. (laughs) Yeah. yeah, yeah. Uh, You know, I, I just think that for Gen Z now, and I think it's totally driven by technology. Yeah. Which is why I do think that you can draw more of a broad characterization of them I, because it's it's not as though I can't point to the why. Sure. Um, I can point to the why. The why is they now have all of these tools to where if, you're, if your mom works in the White House, you can use these tools to get your own voice out there and make us stir up a fuss. And, uh, you know, it is I think that Gen Z feels more empowered by social media and the tools they have at hand to make their voice heard. While for millennials, you know, for us, yeah, we use social media, but again, it's, I think it's just different of how it's baked into our identity. Yeah, no, I think technology is one of the few things where I think, you know, a lot of people don't really appreciate how much technology is culture. Like Mm -hmm. when you go back and you look at archeological digs and you're trying to figure out, Oh, what were the Sumerians like? You look at their technology. I mean, that's like the thing. And Technology shapes culture. You don't get the Protestant Revolution without the printing press. I mean, you all sorts of things. And and so one of the reasons why I think it's a scientific fact that Gen X is the best generation is that we were we were born pre-internet, but we were young enough to adjust to it um, in ways that that like didn't leave us sort of like flopping fish. And 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 because we're just so unbelievably jaded by that process that we have a sort of we're the we're the we're the generation most likely to write in the sweet meteor of death um, on our ballots, and that's that's and therein lies wisdom. Well, and I, I think Gen uh, Gen X is also the most pro-Trump generation in this election. So Trump, that's sweet true. meteor of death. I, I'm not you know saying I'm just saying. I, I, I so actually I have I have a question about that because um I know uh, Ross Douthat's written about this and um. So is that a function that Gen X is becoming more conservative or more Trumpy or whatever? Or is it a function that Trump's, the Republican support among seniors has cratered? I mean, if you lose your number one demographic because they think you're trying to, you're ambivalent about them dying, the guy, the number two position will, will become your number one demographic, right? Or am I missing yes. something there? No. So you're, you're right that if we're talking about this in terms of who is the best generation for Trump, um, the decline of senior support for Trump is, in my view, the big story of this election. I, and I, I say this as someone who loves young voters. There's probably going to be huge surges in youth vote turnout and so on and so forth. But the story here to me is that he lost seniors um, if he winds up losing seniors, which we still have two weeks to go. Um, so you're, you're right. But I also think that the, you know, the data around Gen X being slightly more conservative than you would expect is not new. I remember seeing that when I was first starting my research on all of this like a decade ago, because you all grew up, your first political memories really began to form during the Reagan presidency. Sure. Um, and what happens when you are young and first forming your political identity has huge ripple effects over the long haul. Um, So if you grew up in the 80s is when you first begin engaging in politics, you'll see a slight bump for that cohort staying more conservative 
you know, throughout time. Where for millennials, we came up in the Obama era, hence the the like center lefty hope and changiness that we mm-hmm. have. And Gen Z is growing up in the Trump era, hence the combativeness that, yeah. that they are embracing, um, because this is the world they're growing up in. Um, and there's there's a great report that just came out yesterday. Bipartisan Policy Center does this every year. It's called States of Change, where they do this huge deep dive into how is demographic change altering the American electorate. And this year they focused on generational change. And they noted that like for a little bit of time, you're going to have America's going to continue to age and that that's going to keep Republicans in business. But eventually there comes a point where it's pretty much Gen X is like all that's left unless Republicans start trying to win over this tail end of Gen Z that is just entering the process, which is totally possible. And they actually have a scenario where they consider that possibility. But I'd encourage everyone to go check it out. It's a very neat report. Um, And it Republicans are really at this point, if they don't win back seniors, Gen X is all they're going to have. Yeah, I mean, and, and I think it's important to remember that, you know, this is one of the reasons why, um, you know, I've been pounding my spoon on my high chair about this kind of stuff, as, as as have you, is that if you're really concerned about the long-term health of the country, of the Republican Party, of conservatism, or however you want to define what long-term health looks like, you have to be concerned about things beyond just the next election and have a longer time horizon. And... One place that helps you do that really well is Donors Trust. Each year, Sally invests in numerous charities with her finances and time. Now, thanks to a recent property sale, she also has the resources to support these charities long term. She could have written personal checks to accomplish her charitable goals, but instead she opened a donor-advised fund at Donors Trust. At Donors Trust, she knew she would spend less time on administration and more time having an impact. A donor-advised fund is like a charitable savings account where you can manage your giving in a smart, tax-advantaged, and private way. Donors Trust works with donors at all levels who share a commitment to the freedoms and principles that strengthen America. Donors Trust's philanthropic advisors can help you sharpen your giving, discover new groups, and define your charitable legacy. Join the community of liberty-minded donors at Donors Trust. To see how a donor-advised fund could benefit your giving, go to donorstrust.org slash dingo for their six reasons to use a donor-advised fund pamphlet. That's donorstrust.org slash dingo. We thank Donors Trust for sponsoring today's episode of The Remnant. So let's do, I mean, I, I, I you were very generous to do this so early in the morning and I don't want to keep it too long, but... Um, Let's do a little sort of quasi-rank punditry about the future of the GOP. Um, I'm not one of these people, you know, one of the things I I find very annoying, and I I hear it even from very close friends of mine who say that objections to Donald Trump from conservatives um, basically just boils down to you don't like his style. And I think the objections to Donald Trump are vastly more than just stylistic, you know. but there is something about his style, you know, it's sort of like uh, form follows substance or whatever, you know, uh, whatever that phrase is. Um, there's something kind of infectious about the style. And you were talking about that, about the combativeness of young people. Um, let's assume, or win or lose, right? How much does the right, do you think, 
become Trumpy, not just in terms of trade and own libs, but in terms of it becoming a, you know, in the same way that sort of my Gen X generation was very much a Reaganite generation. Is the future of the right a Trumpy generation? And if so, how does that play out in terms of trying to grow a party rather than just shrink it? If I think it depends a lot on whether Donald Trump is reelected or not, because if he's not, then for young conservatives today, Trump will be that guy who was a one term president who kind of blew everything up. And then when it was all done, unified control of government went to the Democrats or what have you. There's a chance that that is the outcome, in which case I don't believe that Trumpism just evaporates and everybody goes, ah, let's let's pretend that never happened. I don't think that because I think our our the Republican base is still going to be in many ways hungry for a lot of the things Trump did, both stylistically and policy-wise, that differed from the way Republicans were before. And I don't think that just goes back. But I do think that in the absence of Trump as president or as the leader of the party, um, if and when, however that happens, you will start seeing... Right now, something that that bugs me a lot in our our movement and on the right is folks trying to talk like Donald Trump when they are not Donald Trump. Mm -hmm. They perceive that because the base likes Donald Trump and likes the way they talk, they've now got to come up with cutesy nicknames for their opponents and, you know, do outrage, say and do outrageous things because that's that's what these voters want. And I think they misunderstand the extent to which a lot of these things are appealing to in within Trump because he's Trump and not things that they would really love to see, like Kelly Loeffler of Georgia doing mm-hmm. um, with, with all due respect to her. Uh, that, that I just think a lot of folks try to adopt Trumpiness and it doesn't always work for them, but they feel like they have to in this moment when he's so dominant. I think if he loses, even if he does not exit stage left, um, there will be less of an incentive to adopt stylistically how he he handles himself. On the other hand, I think there are some things that are in about that are things Trump changed in the Republican Party that I think are going to stick with younger voters. I think you know, in being more of immigrant hawkish on immigration. I think ideas about global trade. I think ideas about you know America projecting her military strength abroad, things where Donald Trump disagreed with the rest of the the party establishment, I think those policy positions are going to be things that younger conservatives do carry forward. Now, there are other issues like climate change where I don't think that young conservatives are broadly on board with where Donald Trump is. There are even some things like race and gender where I think it's more complicated. Um, But I, I think Trump will have an effect on younger conservatives in a handful of ways in terms of reshaping the GOP policy agenda, but I'm unsure how long stylistically he has an effect, except insofar as if young conservatives are facing young progressives who remain fired up and combative and and AOC-esque, that that will persist because that's just their manner of fighting. So um, I'm just curious about your general take on all this. I mean, I remember the the autopsy, right? got to deal with immigration. You got to deal with the coalition of the ascendant. We got to deal with minorities. You got to deal with yada, yada, yada. And, um, and I understand they're heavily skewed by the specific sort of sui generis nature of Florida's Hispanic electorate, but Trump is doing shockingly well with Hispanics, Mm -hmm. right? Um, 
given that he was talking about them being rapists and scummy and all these other things. Um, and um, so many of the assumptions about the Democrat, demo, the Democrats' demographic hold on the future are based upon assumptions that being born Hispanic means being born progressive and liberal and Democrat and all these kinds of things. And it turns out that it's not in our genes and that Hispanics are perfectly capable of being non-Democrats. Um, given, given where we all thought things were going to go at the beginning of the Trump administration when he was tweeting out pictures of him eating his, you know, uh, his nacho salad or whatever it was at the Trump Tower, um, what are some things that you think we actually know about the Hispanic electorate that um, might give us cause for pessimism or optimism or might give Republicans cause for pessimism or optimism in the years ahead? So I think there's plenty to be optimistic about. Um, and I actually think, you know, instead of the autopsy, which wound up not having been a, it was a great guide for Republicans on some nuts and bolts stuff that happened behind the scenes that no voters ever really saw. Most of the autopsy was not about, hey, we need to change our position on immigration and get more celebrities to endorse our candidates. Those were right. pieces. But the bulk of it was we need to get better about data, organizing, things that most voters won't see overtly, but that the party actually did. And that was a big piece of Donald Trump was able to sort of inherit pieces of that from the RNC and, and use it to win. Um, but I think overall, the party would have been better served by having listened to Ross Douthat and Raihan Salam in their book, Grand New Party, which you know came almost a decade before Trump. But what it, it was sort of suggesting was that the party needed to be the party of folks that shop at Sam's Club. That Republicans had gotten too focused on the needs of the elites, um, whether it was in terms of immigration, et cetera, or whether it was the fact that most Republican consultant types tend to be more socially progressive than the median Republican voter, that by a sort of blend of like a gentle social conservatism with more economic populism, Republicans could build a longer term, more sustainable future and build, bring in the working class. And Donald Trump somehow pulled pieces of that off, probably not in the way that Ross and Ryan would have would have preferred. Um, but that's that's not so dissimilar. You know, the economic populism mixed with social conservatism is what Donald Trump you know, sort of fused together to, to win. Um, and I think that that continues to be a recipe that offers Republicans the best chance of success with working class voters, particularly working class voters of color. That especially if the Democratic Party gets pulled very far to the left, if Joe Biden wins in a landslide and that suddenly makes every progressive activist feel like they have a mandate to, you know, for push Americans to, you know, speak in their language and, uh, you know, adopt all of their their social mores and things that I just I think. I think there's a, going to be an opportunity if the left swings too far in their jubilation over having won this election, that there will be a lot of working class voters of color for whom they are not interested in that. They would just very much like to be able to earn a good living and, you know, keep their family safe. And Republicans will have an opportunity there. Um, all right. So in the, the tiny bit of time we have left, uh, how's Wally? He's great. He's sitting right behind me. Um Oh, you can't really see him. He's uh, waiting for breakfast. Yes, he's waiting for breakfast. Uh, <laughs> he's he's doing great. Just this past weekend, we went out on just a weekend trip to the eastern shore because, you know, I wanted to let Wally off a leash and living in the city. We don't always By the get way, to for do listeners, that. Wally's not her husband. I just, you know, 
Wally's my dog. (laughs) My Turkish golden retriever. Um, But he was living his best life out there in this like rural Eastern shore house on the river. He's really afraid of water. He won't go in like a canoe or anything like that. But um, he was just rolling around in the mud and, you know, prancing around down dirt roads and just so happy. So he's doing quite well. Um, He and I have become deeply emotionally codependent. I used to sort of sneer at this idea of people needing emotional support animals. And I genuinely think that after what has it been, six, seven months of quarantine, I could probably genuinely get certified as requiring Wally to be with me for (laughs) emotional support. No joke. Um, And it, it runs the other way as well. It used to be that we could like leave and go to work and you know, leave Wally home for a couple hours at a time and he was fine. And now if we so much as walk out to get coffee and come back, when we come back, he acts as though the You're world has ended year. and how yeah. dare we have abandoned him. And he's so hurt by it. So it's, uh, whenever we get past this pandemic, uh, adjusting back to normal life is going to be, I think, pretty hard for Wally. I, I feel like he's somewhat pro pandemic. Yeah. So it's funny. Like, um, I have times feel a little overwhelmed by all my animals. You know, I have four quadrupeds in my house and, um, but this on those weird, rare occasions, for whatever reason, the dogs aren't home. When you get home, you're like, Oh my God, this is just like a bunch of construction materials. You know I mean? Like your house doesn't feel like your home if the, the beasts aren't there. And that, that's a really weird sort of, cause I, I Given how much lobbying they do of me, I don't feel a lot of emotional support most of the time from them. <laughs> but then I realize I actually get a lot of it when they're not around. And so for listeners who don't know, I mean, we talked about this before. Um, there is such a thing as a Turkish golden retriever rescue because among the world's worst human beings are certain residents of Turkey who give away or buy golden retriever puppies basically as fashion statements. And the second they get um, old and hard to carry around, they release them into the mean streets of Ankara and Istanbul to fend for themselves. And since most golden retrievers are basically dug from up, um, that is a, I mean, it's one thing if you release your pit bull, you know, which would be wrong too, but like golden retrievers, they're not, they're not ready to street dogs and he's developed very good social uh psychological manipulation skills as uh a result so he's very good at conning bread out of people he's got he developed that skill set very well um and so you get you get bonus points i mean all dogs go to heaven but you might get to go with them because rescuing a golden retriever from turkey is a very good thing to do so and he's a sweetie um all right i'm gonna set you free uh, and, uh, thank you so much for doing this. Maybe we can do a sort of, uh, postmortem after this whole thing is over and, um, look upon the wreckage that is human civilization and, and, and look for, um, evidence that there's a pony somewhere. I would love that. Okay. So, uh, Kristen is gone to go feed Wally, which is important work, probably arguably more important, certainly to Wally, uh, than, uh, this podcast. Um, always great to have Kristen on. Um, she's, as I said, one of my favorite people and, um, good to do some level setting about all of the, uh, polling stuff, which I know people obsess on and, um, shouldn't, but you know, it's what we have to obsess on. Um, and if you could check out the what's next event.com, uh, site to, to learn more about the big thing that we're putting on, that would be great. 
Um, be awesome if everybody listening to this could could sign up. Hey, it'd be awesome if half the people listening to this could sign up. Um, I should also say we got a lot of great feedback from the Will Salatan episode, which was, um, you know, on the technological side, like getting a prostate exam from Thanos um, or Edward Scissorhands. But uh, people seem to like this sort of badinage between a liberal and a conservative who can actually have a civil conversation. So, uh, and I've heard this before from people that we should do more of that. So I guess we'll do more of that. And we're looking into figuring out who else to have on, on those, in, along those lines. If you have suggestions, uh, feel free to send them in. Thanks for all the great reviews at iTunes. And thanks for all the uh, promotion on, on Twitter and, and social media and, um, and oddly at the Union Station bathroom. But I don't know what that graffiti was really about. So anyway, uh, thanks to Kristen Soltis-Anderson. Thanks to me for refraining from any mention of the Jeffrey Tubin controversy, which I, um, which, you know, sophomoric Jonah of 20 years ago would be gravely disappointed in me in not talking about that at much greater length. Um, but uh, maybe we'll save that for the ruminant. Regardless, uh, thanks to everybody, and I'll see you next time. No, you won't. This is a podcast. Sure.